If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Get Naked with Dr. Kate. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Balistrieri, a Beverly Hills-based psychologist, certified sex therapist, and the founder of Modern Intimacy. Thanks for joining me here where I talk about sex, relationships, mental health, and dive into your questions with practical answers and real solutions. Each week, I share insights aimed at helping you build an authentic and healthy relationship with yourself, with others, and with your sexuality. It's time to get naked emotionally, mentally, and on your own time, physically. Hey everyone, welcome back to Get Naked with Dr. Kate. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Balistrieri. I'm a licensed psychologist, certified sex therapist, and the founder of Modern Intimacy, which is a group practice that has therapists in six states. So I'm so glad that you are back here with me today. Thanks for listening. Today I'm going to be speaking with Joel Alexander Kim Booster, and Joel is an American actor, a comedian, producer, and writer. You might know his work. He co-produced and wrote for Big Mouth and The Other Two, and as an actor, he's appeared on Shrill, Search Party, and Sunnyside. In 2022, he wrote, produced, and starred in the Hulu romantic comedy Fire Island, a modern adaptation of Pride and Prejudice with a main cast of Asian American actors. It is one of the few mainstream gay films with a predominantly Asian American cast and co-stars Margaret Cho, Bowen Yang, and Conrad Rikamora. Born Kim Junmin in South Korea, Joel was adopted by an American couple as an infant and raised in Plainfield, Illinois, in a conservative white evangelical Christian family, and was initially homeschooled. In 2014, he moved to New York to pursue a comedy career, and performed a set on Conan in 2016, and then had his own Comedy Central stand-up present special in 2017. He's had many other stand-up specials, including Model Minority, Joel Kim Booster, Psychosexual, and started the podcast in 2019 called Urgent Care with Joel Kim Booster and Mitra Juhari. I am so excited to be speaking with Joel today on my podcast. Joel, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for, so much for having me. Yeah, I, I saw some of your stand-up um, last year, and I just like I honestly couldn't stop laughing. It's hilarious, and I really appreciated how raw you were with the way you've kind of deconstructed and reconstructed all of the different identities that you maintain. So, can we maybe talk a little bit about that? Sure, let's get into it. Yeah. You were born in Korea, right, and then adopted mm-hmm. by U.S. parents, and you grew up in Illinois. Yes, I grew up in the Chicago suburbs, the southwest suburbs. 
So I'm, I lived in Chicago for a long time too. It's amazing. Yeah. And also the suburbs are very different. So what yeah. was that like for you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, so the suburb that I grew up in um, was predominantly white, um, as most of the Chicago suburbs are. Um, and then, um, you know, my family was also white and they also homeschooled me. So I had a very sheltered, very, um, uh, very white <laughs> sort of upbringing. Um, I didn't meet another Korean person until I was probably 13 years old. Um, and so it was a very isolating experience for me racially. Uh, but yeah. And, um, so it, it was a little, um, disorienting. I think like one of my earliest jokes that really sort of, uh, that a lot of people, have heard and connected with is that I knew I was gay before I knew I was Asian, um, which is a, a sentiment that is actually quite real to my experience because I, you know, from the time I was probably like four or five, I remember experiencing attraction to men. And then it really wasn't until um, after that, when I was at a, a family reunion in Alabama, of all places, mm. um, that I sort of realized that I was a different race from my family for the first time, you know, b being the only Asian person in a, in a sea of about like 55, you know, white Germanic people. Um, it was a real shock to me in that moment. Um, so yeah, that, that is sort of the, the genesis of, of my, um, sort of fractured identities, I guess. Yeah. How did you, how did you make that realization? Was it born from someone making comments to you or did it come from your own awareness of something? I think it came from my own awareness more so than anything. I mean, growing up with family in the South, like obviously there were questions and there were comments and there were, there was insensitivity. No one was, no one was cruel or I would say, um, sort of, aggressively racist towards me but I, I think there's sort of you know a little bit more of the like um, benevolent racism model minority status sort of you know uh, expecting me to be good at math and and things like that you know um, from my family that is you know sort of racist in its own way but not um, not evil um, and uh, but for me, really, it was, I remember we were taking a like a, a group family photo and I just looked around and I realized for the first time that no one looked like me um, and they all looked the same. They all looked similar. And I felt like the odd man out in that moment. And I was, but it was, you know, it was, it was difficult, I think, as a child to really understand the implications of being a different race than my family and being a different race other than white in general. I mean, it wasn't mm -hmm. until much later that I would understand what that actually meant for me um, and and how that would affect my life moving forward. Yeah. I imagine it was um, kind of jarring in the moment and, and maybe took a long time to really process. And I wonder, at that point, did you know that you were adopted? Yeah, my, my my parents were always really transparent about the fact that I was adopted, that I was adopted from Korea. They had books, they had, you know, um, you know, all sorts of explanations for me and 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 answers to all of my questions. Um, and you know, like I remember this poem, like prominently featured in my house, that was basically like, um, it's it's I I, I imagine probably a semi-famous poem about adoption, basically about how like 
you know, you have another mother who, you know, loved you and, um, you know, uh, bore you, but, you know, and now you have two moms and one here who loves you just as much, you know, blah, 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 you know, something sappy like that. And I, and that is like, I remember just like looking at that and understanding that poem from a very, very young age. Um, <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> but, um, <clears throat> they never really talked to me about sort of the racial aspect of it. I think there was a cultural, like my parents were actually quite open to me learning about Korean culture and learning about my heritage. Um, they, they were very open to that when I was growing up, but especially like when I was an adolescent, I was, uh, as I said, growing up in an all white community, going to a mostly white church, going to, um, being homeschooled. And so like, I felt so different all the time once I came of age. And I remember when they were like asking me, like, do you want to learn Korean? Do you want to learn more about your culture? And at that point, you know, I was like 10 and I felt so different. And I was like, the last thing I want to do is feel any more fucking different than I do right right now. So no, I don't want to learn anything. I just want to be a normal quote unquote kid. And Mm -hmm. so um, I regret that now because (laughs) I think it would have been a really great opportunity for me back then when I had the time and my brain was still, you know, small and, and, uh, malleable uh, to like learn a new language or um, learn about my heritage um, something that you know I I've done now more as an adult but mm-hmm. you know it's hard to you know find the time and to, to really dig in and especially learning a new language as an adult is such a trial because we all know English too well now at this point nothing else makes sense so yeah yeah. Yeah. Our brains are so much less neuroplastic now. It, yeah. it, as adults, it's hard to get more information in there unless you really dedicate a lot yeah, of time exactly. to it. And who has that kind of time? Exactly. Yeah. Well, you, you talk a lot as a writer, an actor, comedian, um, like about how kind of some of these intersectional identities impact your work and how you show up in the world. You also talk a lot about mental health. I'm really curious, like what beget your fascination with mental health and your relationship with your own? Um, yeah, it's difficult because, you know, I, I experienced, um, there was a lot of, it's, it's hard to pinpoint what was, um, environmental and what was genetic for me growing mm-hmm. up because I really struggled as a kid. I really, really struggled with depression. What I re- now recognize is possibly hypomania. Um, you know, I was very volatile emotionally as a child and as a, as a teenager. And, and part of that was growing up in an extremely religious and extremely, uh, controlling, extremely, um, like sort of oppressively religious uh, environment. You know, I was homeschooled until I was 16 years old, you know, and I was sheltered from most of the outside world. And and I really, you know, and I was taught that who I was um, as a gay person was uh, wrong. And, you know, Mm -hmm. and so all of those things being bombarded by that kind of messaging from the time you're very, very young until you're an adolescent, until you're a teenager, I'm sure damaged my mental health in in so many innumerable ways but i also think that like um there was there were real signs of mental illness that my parents being i think because they are religious and conservative really didn't want to address and i remember they finally put me on 
an antidepressant when I was in high school, but very begrudgingly and very much um, because they, it was sort of a last resort, last ditch effort for them um, to, to sort of level me out. But it really took a lot of fighting from different people, different, um, like my counselor at school really advocating for me and understanding that there was something else going on here that was not just environmental, that was making me feel this way. And it wasn't until I was um, in my 30s, my early 30s, that I was finally diagnosed bipolar too. And it, it made, it, it honestly, you know, as upsetting as it is to hear that you have this thing that you're mm -hmm. gonna deal with for the rest of your life, um, it was almost sort of like a weight lifted too because it, it suddenly reframed a lot of my behavior and a lot of my episodes as um, a child, as a teenager, as a, as a, as a, as a 20 something. It, it, it just reframed a lot of the behavior and a lot of the, these moments that I never understood and I never really could um, uh, wrap my head around before I was like, oh, this makes so much sense now. And yeah. um, so it was really, you know, I, I wasn't like happy to hear that I, <laughs> I you know, di was diagnosed bipolar, but um, it definitely ref reframed a lot of my life um, in, a, in a really mm -hmm. helpful way. Sounds like you were able to have more compassion for younger versions of yourself. I wonder, like, what are some of the behaviors that you were able to reframe and have compassion for that before maybe you had a more negative relationship with yeah i think um you know i my mom and dad referred to them as tantrums um mm. which i experienced well 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 into like young adulthood okay um, like almost like childlike uncontrollable anger and rage and like mm -hmm. um an inability to control you know, myself. And, um, I had a lot of shame about that. And, and to an extent, I still do, you know, cause there would be really public meltdowns when I was like 14, mm -hmm. 15, 16 years old. Um, really embarrassing, really terrible, like sort of like hair trigger moments where I would go from being completely stable and, and on the level to completely explosive and, you know, um, with anger and tears and crying and screaming and all of these things, sometimes in public, sometimes not. And I had a lot of shame about that because my mom and my dad would sort of be like, you're too old to be having temper tantrums. Mm -hmm. And I would think I'm too old to be having tem temper tantrums. <laughs> and, and then realizing now, like as, as an adult, like, Oh, like those were moments of mania. Those were moments of, uh, of extreme depression that were like sort of, creating these like wild mood swings in me and um you know it was just something that i feel less shame about it now because it wasn't mm -hmm. necessarily something that i can control and obviously my environmental factors weren't work were contributing to i think the intensity of my mood swings but um it definitely definitely reframed a lot of those moments for me and and released a lot of shame once i had my diagnosis I'm so glad that it gave you some reprieve from that shame. I mean, it can be really hard to, I imagine, and tell me if I'm wrong, but it can be really hard, I think, to grow up being homeschooled and not have as much of like the social feedback from other kids your age that might help with developing different regulation skills. Absolutely. And yeah, and emotional management skills. So it must have felt really, um, I shouldn't say must have, I imagine it could have felt really 
like alienating to be having these outbursts and, and these experiences that felt so incongruent with, you know, your age. Yeah, no, it definitely did. And I think like, you know, shame and embarrassment was like such a, a, a theme of my teenage years because of these episodes and because of my inability to control my my emotions and I felt you know I I'm also I'm also a Pisces I'm very emotional you know and like I I just think by nature even if I wasn't bipolar I would be an emotional person in general like when I'm medicated and stable and on the level like I'm still an emotional person and so and I think like there's a lot of toxic masculinity my dad was a farmer you know my dad was a very traditional very masculine, very like old school John Wayne Western mm-hmm. kind of guy, and there was a lot of shame wrapped up in the fact that I cried and that I was emotional and that mm-hmm. and my dad was so stoic like i i I like can't remember um like the my dad passed during covid unfortunately, oh, so and sorry. I think like um the only time I ever saw him cry was um when we FaceTimed right before he died. And, mm-hmm. and it was like a, it was a really like difficult thing to grow up with a dad like that and to be a sort of effeminate, um, emotional kid. Like I felt like I was constantly disappointing him and mm-hmm. I felt like I, you know, never would live up to this ideal of masculinity that he really was like setting the model for me growing up and and you know and and great i'm great i'm so grateful that we were actually in the best place in our relationship that we've ever been in um in the year leading up to him passing and i think part of that was like um me as an adult like having a house and like you know like finally connecting with him on like you know i was like building fixing things in the house and building things in the house and things like Mm -hmm. that and like finally as an adult like sort of connecting with him on a on a level that he understood and could understand um but yeah i think that was especially difficult the 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 whole like issue of my not only sexuality but my masculinity and like all of those issues sort of wrapped up into one as i was growing up what was it like for you as you made the transition from being homeschooled into high school given how you were feeling and what you were sitting with um i think it was definitely sensory overload for me Mm -hmm. um both like sort of like physically and emotionally and spiritually and all of the things I think like I had wanted to go to school from the time I was, I knew what school was quite honestly. Mm -hmm. I had been asking to be sent to school since the time I was very, very young. And then when they finally agreed to do it, you know, within a month of going to public school, I came out of the closet I sucked a dick for the first time. I drank for the first time. I smoked weed for the first time. I shoplifted for the first time. Like, <laughs> like everything you thought, everything I could do, I did within truly the the October of me going to public school for the first time. And it was it it, it completely flipped my life on its head. And like again, like I think some of this, uh, looking back on it, was probably hypomania, <laughs> like I was experiencing as a kid, and. And, and and definitely understanding it on that level. But um, it was also like sort of the best thing that ever happened to me because I was able to to experience the world 
more on my terms and less in, under the framework that my parents had sort of rigidly set out for me my entire life. And um, it was really when I began to form an identity that matched like both the internal me and the outside me were sort of lining up more so for the first time. Um, the, and that had never been the case before. Like I had, I had such a rich inner life living at home mm-hmm. and like, you know, I was a huge reader. I was reading books all the time and, and just like my imagination was just like huge. And I, I wanted to be experiencing the world. Like that's all I really mm-hmm. wanted in my entire life was to experience the world, like the people that I was reading about. And suddenly I had this opportunity to do it and I was you know, really going full tilt <laughs> um, yeah. as much. I wanted to live as much as possible and I, uh, I wasn't sure when or how it would be taken away from me again. So I just sort of mm-hmm. wanted to, you know, dive in. Was that a, a looming threat that it might be taken away from you? I think that it was uh, more of, I had no idea what my future was going to be at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents made it very clear that college was probably not in the cards for me. Uh, financially. Um, I wasn't uh, an amazing student. I was not going to be getting a full ride anywhere, you know, um, anytime soon. I struggled a little bit like transitioning from homeschooling to public school because I, I there was no structure to our homeschooling. Mm-hmm. I was just sort of reading books all day and not doing math or science. So it was, um, it was, a, it was, a, it was an adjustment for sure. But like, um, yeah, I think there was just a general uncertainty about what was going to happen to me post-18, post-graduation from high school. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I had no idea. And I ended up moving out of my house when I was 17, when my parents finally did discover that I was gay, and um, moving in with a friend. And, you know, it was only at that point that my future sort of looked, and I could, I could sort of identify, like, a path for myself out of this world that I had been living in. And so, um, but that first year when I was like 16 to 17, junior year of high school, I had no idea what my life was going to look like in two years. And that was really scary. And so I did want to sort of get in as much living as possible while I could. And and you did. You moved from there to New York, right? Uh, no. Well, I, I went to school in, um, I ended up going, I, I applied to one college okay. uh, because the application fee was free. And online, it was called Millican University. It's a, a great liberal arts school in downstate Illinois. And I went there, um, took out a shit ton of student loans to go there. Um, and with the support of my friend's family who co-signed on my student loans and bought me a car for graduation and et cetera, mm-hmm. I was able to go to college. And uh, after college, I moved back to Chicago, the city, downtown proper, um, for t- about two years, and then I moved to New York, uh, where I was there mm-hmm. for about six years. So you lived. You, you've been. Li- you lived big after that. Yeah. And I'm so curious. Like, what was that like to be in the in the college and sort of the smaller town, but then in Chicago, where there's so much more um, diversity, so much more vibrance, so much more culture, and then in New York, where I mean, amplify that even yeah. more. Um. Yeah. I. I think like. For me, college was about catching up, I think, and filling in the gaps in terms of, um, you know, there are certain things of levels of maturity that I just didn't have socially yet, I think, because mm-hmm. I hadn't experienced a lot socially. Um, and so, you know, there were things like, you know, I had boyfriends in high school once I was out and things like that, but like really experiencing the social dynam- dynamics of dating and understanding like 
the, you know, diving into hookup culture and, and things like that and understanding like how to can pose, how to, how to really present myself socially. Because the thing is, is like, I'm, I'm very lucky. Like I was homeschooled until I was 16 and I think I was comparatively to many people in that situation, pretty socially adept by the time I went to high school. Like, uh, you know, I think part of that is because I had been going to church and like, you know, socialized that way. And I had jobs Mm -hmm. since the time I was 14. And so I was interacting with people like that. Um, but there were, there were gaps in my social education. Like I remember in high school finding out the prevalence with which people would talk behind each other's backs friends would talk behind each other's backs and being sort of shocked by that and being sort of, I was really guileless as, as a high schooler and still kind of am to a certain degree. But like, I, I remember being like, you know, and like my friend, Emily, I'd, I'd be like, Emily, everyone's always so mad at you because you're late all the time. They're always talking about it, you know? And I, I would like have situations like that where I would just, without thinking, um, about the implication, I would just like say the thing that everyone was saying behind the person's mm-hmm. back, and that is like, you know, I've I've since learned how to talk shit behind people's backs. <laughs> I'm an expert at it now. Trust me, um, but I am I I do sort of like lean more towards truth telling in in social situations mm-hmm. and and sort of confronting problems head on because um, because I just I didn't have the foundational education about like the ways in which to like when it's okay to talk shit and when it's not okay to talk shit and when it's healthy to talk shit and when it's not healthy to talk shit and when mm-hmm. you know so it was little things like that that college for me was like a resetting and was like sort of like me catching up to everyone else socially mm-hmm. um while also like learning and doing you know all the educational things i mean college was such a like college for me was so much more about socially learning about myself mm-hmm. and learning who I was and how to interact with people than it was about any class I took, I have to say. Yeah, I get that. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Addy. Ladies, did you know that one of the most common complaints from women about their sexual health is a frustrating low libido? Our sex drives can decline, but it's also treatable. Addy, or Flibansarin, is FDA-approved and has been clinically proven to increase sexual desire in certain premenopausal women who are bothered by a low libido. So if you feel like you've lost your desire and you want to get it back, stop falling for the snake oils and ask your doctor about Addy today, or go to Addy.com. That's A-D-D-Y-I.com. Addy is for premenopausal women with acquired generalized hypoactive sexual desire disorder, HSDD, who have not had problems with low sexual desire in the past, who have low sexual desire no matter the type of sexual activity, the situation, or the sexual partner. The low sexual desire is troubling to them and is not due to a medical or mental health problem, problems in the relationship, or medicine or other drug use. 
Addy is not for use in men or to enhance sexual performance. Your risk of severe low blood pressure and fainting is increased if you drink one to two standard alcoholic drinks close in time to your Addy dose. Wait at least two hours after drinking before taking Addy at bedtime. Your risk of severe low blood pressure and fainting is also increased if you take certain prescriptions, over-the-counter or herbal medications, or have liver problems. Low blood pressure and fainting can happen when you take Addy even if you don't drink alcohol or take other medicines. Do not take if you are allergic to any of the ingredients in Addy. Allergic reactions may include hives, itching or trouble breathing. Sleepiness, sometimes serious, can occur. Common side effects include dizziness, nausea, tiredness, difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep, and dry mouth. See full PI and medication guide, including box warning at addy.com forward slash PI, or call 844-PINK-PILL. Go to addy.com and use code GETNAKED for a $10 telemedicine appointment to find out if Addy is right for you. How and when did you decide you wanted to be in this sort of creative space? You know, writing, um, producing, comedy, you do, you do a lot, and really dimensionally. Yeah, I would say, I mean, from the time I was really young, all I wanted to do was be an actor. I think like that for many people in the arts is sort of like the entry point because it's the most easily mm-hmm. understandable side of things. Like you don't really understand what a producer does yet, you know, when you're 16 um, or anything like that. And so like I, I really just wanted to be an actor and I went to theater school. I wanted to be a Broadway actor. Um, again, because like all I'd done was theater as a kid and as a high school student. And so that seemed like the, the easiest, you know, path of least resistance. So I went to school for theater and then eventually transitioned into writing, um, playwriting. And, um, as I understood, as, as my understand, my knowledge of the world of entertainment sort of like filled out, the more it filled out and the more I understood what my options were, the more I was interested in doing all of it. Um, and so I think like for me, I moved to Chicago because I wanted to produce and write and star in plays. And that's what I was doing in Chicago for those two years. And in those two years in Chicago is also when I discovered stand up as like a medium mm-hmm. um, for me to like be sort of authentically myself on stage and like without any sort of. Uh, production necessary. I mean, stand-up is like, in terms of like getting into it, the easiest thing in the world. There's no classes you have to take to intro yourself to it. You just go to an open mic and you do it and you figure it out and you do it your own way. And like, uh, and that was really appealing to me at that point. Mm -hmm. And it started as a hobby, um, as like a side project where it was like, okay, this is is purely artistic. I'm not going to I'm never going to be a famous comedian or anything like that. So I might as well just have fun and do this and like sort of as an outlet for myself. And then it slowly became less of a hobby and more of the main focus of my creative life in Chicago. And that's when I moved to New York was to pursue that full time, basically, as much as possible. I mean, I still had a day job, but, um, you know, I would work uh, nine to six and then go to do open mics from like six till midnight and uh, beyond. And, and that was my New York life for so, so long. And I, it was tough and it was hard, but it, you know, I have that sort of um, comedian, like rose colored glasses about that time in my life where I was sleep deprived, starving and <laughs> tired all the time. <laughs> uh, but having the best time in my life and really learning it and becoming this, the person that I am today as a, as a stand up and as an artist. Amazing. So you, are you in LA now? I'm in LA now. I've been in LA since 2019. Okay. So transitioning to LA from New York, I'm really curious, like what, what did you notice about how you showed up in life and like relationships? What was different for you in New York versus LA, if anything? Um, I mean, so technically I moved to LA when I was, um, 
like in my like I think like thirty or thirty one. Um, and so like for me, like New York and Chicago were my twenties where I was a mess and drinking a lot and just like, um, undiagnosed bipolar, uh, like really ups and downs and tumultuous times. And, and New York, you know, it is the greatest city in the world. It's, it's, I love New York so much, but it takes a lot of energy to live there, especially if you don't have money, um, which I didn't at the time. And, um, so move, when I moved to L.A. For, uh, for work, for when I first started to get steady work as a writer and as a comedian and as an actor, um, suddenly my life became a lot easier, um, I think, because A, L.A. is easy mode. L.A. is, like, in terms of pace of life, I think, like, compared to New York, it's just, it was like being in slow-mo the first couple of months that I was here. Um, but so in a, such a, 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 a wonderful way. Um, and then also, you know, I was like finally getting success in my career. I was able to quit my day job. I was, a, I was writing for television and, um, I, you know, was on an NBC sitcom briefly, which was the only reason I was able to pay off my student loans. And that mm-hmm. like really freed me up financially. I mean, like for my entire twenties, I was paying more in student loan payments than I was in rent for wow. like truly 10 years. Um, and so I, I was experiencing like this economic freedom for the first time, this like sort of artistic freedom for the first time. And that was when I really like when all of the other struggles that you experienced in your twenties, the, the poverty and the, um, the sleep deprivation and suddenly everything in your life is a little bit easier. That's when the clarity about where the problems are, I Mm. think really become evident. Because suddenly I was like, okay, like I'm sleeping regularly. I, you know, I have the money, money to feed myself and do fun things. And, you know, um, I'm doing my, I have my dream job, my literal dream job right now. Um, everything I have ever wanted is happening to me in this moment. And yet I would still find myself in these deep, deep lows or, you know, which, and uh, the highs are a little harder to, it's much harder for me to, in hindsight, know when I was hypomanic versus when I was depressed. Like when I'm, when I have depressive cycles, I know that that's what's Mm -hmm. happening to me. And it's very easy in hindsight to remember that's what's happening because I was in bed for a week, you know? Um, the hypomanic cycles, which I experience more often than depressive cycles, it's really hard because it's like, I'm getting a lot done. (laughs) I wrote a whole script. I cleaned my entire house. I started several projects that I never finished. Um, and it's only until, you know, something triggers me that Mm -hmm. those hypomanic moments become, you know, Joel being fun and high energy to Joel being like screaming, crying, um, having a massive mental breakdown. Um, because if anything sort of tumultuous happens while I'm, I'm feeling hypomanic, it is like, it is DEFCOM five. Like we, you know, all hands on deck. It is a total meltdown. And, um, that I think like those moments became more and more frequent and evident. I remember, so I was on this NBC sitcom that was like very short lived and it was a huge moment for me. I was like, you know, one of the stars of this sitcom, it was new show. And I remember they scheduled, they scheduled the first table read, um, during a trip I had planned to New York. 
And on any in any other situation, if I was not feeling hypomanic, I think I would have just been like, oh, I'll move my trip to New York. But I, you get so obsessive when you're hypomanic. Yeah. I could not... I could not deal with it. I was like, no, I had this set. This was the plan. I'm going to New York. This is what I have to do. And how do like it could it did not compute. I tried to quit the show. I said, I I'm this gigantic opportunity that I have. I am going to quit it because I cannot deal with not with changing my vacation plans. And it was, and it sounds insane. It sounds so insane to me to explain it to you now, but I was like on the bathroom floor, like, <laughs> like truly having a meltdown about not knowing how to like change my plans or doing what. And so what I ended up doing was I literally flew to New York on Thursday, flew back to New York uh, or flew back to LA on Friday, flew back to New York on Saturday. Um, to continue the trip and like that uh, to a lot of my friends they were like that's just Joel being kooky and like no that was Joel being manic like just like truly and that was like a real moment of like something's gotta give here and it was sort of the start of my journey towards my diagnosis and Mm -hmm. um, it was just a lot of moments like that and like, like I said like when your life becomes easier and suddenly all of the excuses sort of are stripped away of like, oh, I'm, I'm sad because I'm poor. I'm sad because I'm, you know, um, sleep deprived. Like when all of those things are gone, it becomes very clear, you know, that there is something else going on. So at that point, you started working with a therapist or a psychologist and like you got your diagnosis. So tell me, how do you take care of yourself and, and manage the symptoms today? Um, so, uh, I, I have a, an amazing therapist. I have an amazing psychologist, both of whom are just, I, I, I am so glad. And it took a long time to find both. Mm -hmm. I would say actually my psychologist, my first ever psychologist that I've ever had, he's the man who diagnosed me and he's great. And I got really lucky in that regard. Um, my, my therapist, it it took a long time to find the right one, but I found an amazing one. And, and that support system is really important, obviously, Medication is is definitely um, really important to keeping me stable. I have gone off my meds now. Since diagnosis, I have gone off three times um, Mm -hmm. for extended periods of time, um, thinking, sort of tricking myself into thinking I didn't need them or Mm -hmm. I... I think the biggest thing for me with my diagnosis and the medication of it all is that I sometimes fall into this trap of thinking that the medication is making me less creative. Mm-hmm. And that I've lost um, a really important sort of um, part of my creative brain that is dulled by the medication or something like that, mm-hmm. which is, I think, the disease lying to me um, mm-hmm. in many ways. Um, and every time I've gone off, it's because of that. It's because of mm-hmm. that reason where I'll have like a writer writing lull or I don't feel as energized or as... Um, inspired maybe to write and I don't feel as good about it and then I'll go off and I'll have like a month where I feel amazing and I'm writing and and what it is is I miss the mania and it's like such a bad it's it's so hard to explain to people who don't know what that is but like when you feel the high it, it is like I just missed myself 
when I was hypomanic because not every hypomanic episode ended in disaster for me. You know, sometimes I would just get a shit ton done and write a Mm -hmm. script in, uh, you know, like a week or something like that. And, and it would feel amazing. And then, you know, something would happen and it would become, I I usually a depressive cycle would happen and Mm -hmm. I just couldn't, wouldn't pull myself out of it. I'm just coming out of a period this summer where I again went off my meds and um, seemed fine for a good portion of it. And then also, like in hindsight, there were so many moments that like should have been warning signs for me. I would, you know, have sex with three guys in one day mm. and think that was completely normal. Um, I would spend, you know, five grand on like random shit that like I you know like true like books that I I will never I it would take me years to read right. all of them you know and just like filling my house with shit and and sex and drugs and all of these things and which you know on a staple day like is all fine in moderation but mm-hmm. um you know in hindsight realizing that like oh I was like actually very manic during a lot of those moments um so yeah i'm back on my meds now and i feel great and i you know it's always like the first several months of being back on my meds i'm such an evangelist for them Mm. and then uh, you know i'm trying to now like head off the next um period of i'm trying to remember this feeling and hold on to it for as long as possible so that the next time my brain tells me i don't need them anymore um i don't just you know go rogue yeah, I I appreciate your transparency around this. It's something that happens a lot for folks who are managing bipolar symptoms because it does feel really energizing and invigorating to be on, on the climb in that hypomanic state. And it's something that a lot of people really miss when they yeah. do feel more stable because stability in your nervous system feels kind of like boredom, right? Mm-hmm. And and like there's not a lot of zhuzh or energy or, or movement there that can that has previously been a source of creativity or vibrance for people. And it's, I think there's a lot of grieving that happens for people when they're like like juggling, how do I stay stable and avoid the, the, the really high highs or the really low lows and just kind of hit that sweet spot because it's a really tough sweet spot to stay in. It really is. And it, and it took a lot of dosage, you know, like we, 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 we tried different medications. We tried different dosages. Mm-hmm. It is a process and it is a journey. And in fact, going back on my meds this time, I, we changed the dosage of, of um, my antipsychotic. And I think that has actually really like just like fi- by like five milligrams. Mm-hmm. And I think like it's really changed um, a lot of my thought processes about the way I feel on medication. And I think like, again, it's it's a journey to find the right team to help you and it's a journey to find the right combo of of medicines that will work for you and make you and because the thing is is i think that especially at the beginning i was like oh like being medicated will feel sort of bad or it, it it's normal that like i feel like a zombie or i feel like xyz because i'm medicated and like this is i guess the new normal and it took a long time and a lot of work with my psychologist to the psychiatrist to be like Oh no, like there's a, like, it, I don't have to just live with this, you know, new normal. Like we can, we can figure out other options. There is a different way, different set of medications or a different dosage of medications that can make me feel, you know, 
closer to you know who I you know to myself you know and and that's what we've done and I think like I'm really grateful for that how have you um like how have you intentionally or unintentionally gotten more in touch with like pleasure and um fun and creativity when you are in kind of that more stable space like what kind of pleasure practice or or artistic practice have you been able to tap into to kind of grow some some of that uh, energy where maybe it feels like the medication has muted it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to say in the past because the, the, the problem is, is that I'm coming out of um, a depressive cycle. Mm. That's what made me go back on my meds. That's what mm-hmm. sort of pushed me back into being like, okay, I need some help here because mm-hmm. I was in a very, very dark um, depressive state. And so it's hard to pinpoint like, because now everything feels now that I'm like mm-hmm. when you come out of a depressive cycle you're just like oh my god everything feels easy everything feels fun mm-hmm. and so like rebuilding like the the pleasure parts of my experience on medication was very easy this time because I'm you know everything just seemed great in comparison mm-hmm. to where I was a few weeks ago um but I think like a, a an interesting barometer for me and a way I've sort of managed that and and having fun and experiencing joy on medication is you know um my partner my boyfriend is really um a good and helpful sort of like measuring stick for when i am sort of out of control and then like pulling me back and like um helping me experience and and understand joy and and pleasure and things like that like on uh a more stable level i think like he is definitely a stabilizing presence um in my life and is it's it knows me well enough now to know to sort of like clock like it's really hard to hide from him when i like when i went off my medication like i lied to him for months about it because he knew that something was off and you know despite the fact that i was like happy and energetic and we were having fun and we were partying i he knew that something was wrong um and you know we've we've sensed had a very big come to Jesus moment I'm not going to like I I didn't tell him I promise you I will never go off my meds again Mm -hmm. what I can promise you is that I will tell you when Mm -hmm. that happens uh, if I decide that because it's a difficult thing when you're in a relationship and you're bipolar or or I'm sure any you know um, chronic mental illness is that like this is my body this is my brain this is my Mm -hmm. life that I you know am Uh, dealing with right now and so like if I need to go off my meds like because I feel the the urge the urgency to do so then I'm going to do that Um, and it's not a discussion I think that like I want it's not something that you can veto but it is something that I will bring to you and discuss and sort of like involve you in the process of now Mm -hmm. um, and that's sort of what we've decided but it is it's a difficult thing to to manage when you're in a relationship I think especially it's like so wonderful to have that person that outside set of eyes that knows you inside out that Mm -hmm. can sort of uh, help you but it is also difficult when it's like how how involved are they in your you know um, (sighs) regimen your your you know yeah, your journey with that. Yeah, I mean, it, it is really hard because it it is your life, your body, your your mind, your brain, your process, and also, you know, in relationships, our behavior impacts our partners. 
And so there's, there is a really delicate line. And I'm really curious how the two of you kind of negotiate those things. How do you talk about it so that everybody's autonomy and impact is really measured in? Yeah, I think like for me, when we talk about it a lot, like, um, you know, it's, it's difficult because like when I've been in, I have had a lot of moments where I'm like, you need to, to abandon shit. I am a sinking ship. This is only going to get worse as time goes on. And you are not equipped to deal with this. Like, it's really difficult to actually be in a relationship with someone who is so well-adjusted and so has such a normal brain that, like, you, I feel constantly like I'm going to damage him in the process and, and uh, of this, you know, experience of over the course of our lives together. And I do think that we are probably going to be together for a long, long time. I, I worry that I'm going to damage him in some way or that I'll be a burden to him in some way. And like talking about those feelings has been really important to the longevity and the health of our relationship Mm -hmm. because, you know, it's not about him saying like, I will stay with you no matter what, but it's about like, I will stay with you as long as you continue to to care about yourself and you're, and, and you take care, you know, like it's not about him. I'm not doing it for him, but, um, Mm -hmm. It definitely is like if he's going to stay, he needs to know that I'm I'm fighting for myself and I'm advocating for myself, too. Um, And that was like, I think, a big part of our communication process um, once we started. And and the thing is, is I met him after I was diagnosed. He knew very I I think I talked about it the night we met (laughs) like Mm -hmm. that. I like a very upfront about like who who I am and what he was getting into. And um but like for me, I think it's it's like I can't just like throw up my hands and say I give up. This is mm-hmm. who I am. I'm never going to feel good again. It was like, mm-hmm. no, if, if I'm going to be here too, I have to see you doing some of the work. I can help you. I can help pull you up. And he mm-hmm. does. But like, I can't just be like dead weight. I have to sort of like put something mm-hmm. into it myself. And um, it's finding that balance. I think that's really important for us of when he is, when I, when I can like lean on him as my partner, mm-hmm. but not too much to the point where he has to feel like he has to like carry me. Um, right is finding that balance yeah yeah he's he's not your therapist right yes, and so no, exactly making sure that he stays as a partner is really exactly. important for both of you right to feel like like it's a really meaningful dynamic mm-hmm. yeah so you talked a little bit um in one of your uh comedy shows about being non-monogamous and I'm really curious about how how that plays out for you in your day-to-day life especially as you navigate your mental health and and prioritize yourself yeah I I will say like just from a mental health standpoint um like it takes a lot of the guilt out I I I often wonder like would I be a cheater if Mm -hmm. I weren't non-monogamous like would my hypomania like make like would i would i make those same decisions if i were in a monogamous relationship and i i gotta say excuse me um it is great i'm grateful that i don't have to deal with that (laughs) question (laughs) of being in a non-monogamous relationship where we mostly are sort of like free to do as we please but i mean it's all about communication i think we started we started out with a lot of rules. Um, we've always been open in our relationship. We've never had a moment where we've been monogamous from the very 
from the beginning we started long distance that's part of it and we came back together and um all those things and we had a lot of rules um but i realized and we both realized sort of um a good ways in is that when you have rules it sort of creates this mentality or can create this mentality of like well i did this thing i technically didn't break any of our rules but it would still hurt him you know, mm-hmm. like, and, and it, it would cause these situations where it was like, I would point to and be like, I, I, I didn't, I didn't break any rules. And I knew as I was doing it, this probably would hurt my partner, yeah. but I'm not breaking any of the rules that we set. So I'm good. I'm in the clear. And, and so what we've sort of landed on through communication and talking through these moments of hurt, uh, and, um, is that like our now one rule is because we know each other so well, I know my partner inside out, he knows me inside out. I know what would hurt him and he knows mm-hmm. what would hurt me. And we don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> that is, that's pre- I mean, that's, that is the, the bottom line of, of our rule is that like, yeah. I, I don't need to like, there's not like, like, I, I think like some of our rules were like no sleepovers, um, you know, no exes, no, you know, talk to us about stuff, certain things first and, and things like that. And it's like, okay, I'm not doing any of that, but I know that like, if I leave you at this party to go hook up with a guy, like I know that's going to hurt you. So I'm not like, even though that wasn't one of our rules, you know, like, right. um, and so like, I think for us that has been really paramount and communication, obviously, like we have resets all the time. This yeah. is not like something that is, is going to carry us through the rest of our, our relationship open or otherwise, like we constantly sort of come back together and say like, Hey, how are you feeling? Are you okay? I'm okay. Mm -hmm. You know? And you know, it, it, it it is um, definitely an ongoing of evolution, a process. It's not something that I think will stay static for very long. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's so true, right? And you're a dynamic human, so is your partner. So how you both feel and what you both need is going to change. And it's great yeah. that you're having those those check-ins and, and that there is so much prioritization of protection of one another yeah. in the partnership. That feels really, really amazing. Well, and the, the nice thing, too, about our dynamic is there's not a lot of jealousy involved. Mm-hmm. I think, like, neither of us are very jealous people phys- mm-hmm. in terms of, like, the physicality of it. Because I think both of us have the same mentality about sex where, like, the sex that we have together is so beautiful, so spiritual, mm-hmm. so passionate, um, and really intimate. But sometimes... We just want to fuck, you know. <laughs> like I just like I want to have like gross, dirty, anonymous sex with a stranger, mm-hmm. and I know he does too. And like that's a very different experience yeah. than the kind of sex you have when you're in a relationship. Totally. And so um, I think like for us, like I know that, like I just know I have I'm so secure in our relationship that like I can see him at a party making out with someone else, and I'll be like, oh yeah, he's getting a need met over there that mm-hmm. I can't necessarily provide. But I know for a fact that this person is a, a loser, a joker. I like compared to me, you know, like I just don't, I'm, I'm not worried that he's going to leave me for someone because of they might have good sex because for mm-hmm. us, like the, 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 there's like such a wholeness to our relationship that like, I don't know, I'm just not worried about it. Um, and I, I think like that is kind of the secret is, and how I know I found you know, my person is that mm-hmm. I, I feel truly nothing when I see that. 
um, because mm-hmm. I am just so secure in what we've built together over the last mm-hmm. you know two and a half three years. Wow, that's so beautiful. Well, Joel, thank you again for coming on my show today and and being so open and and so honest about your own process in life and everything that you've been doing to live big and vibrantly. Um, Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you feel is really important people know about you or about anything that we've discussed? Um, No, I think, I mean, we've we've covered a lot of it. I think, um, you know, um, for me... Uh, I think a big part of my mental health journey that I am now a big evangelist for is um, living less um, connected to social media and needing Mm. to, um, you know, figure out a way to make it work for you and but Mm. also not make it such an integral part of your identity. And like it used to be for me, it used to be like every thought I have, I have to share it on social media Mm. and every part of me has to be visible on social media, every part of my identity. Like I want everyone to get a three-dimensional idea of who I am as a person based on these pictures and these thoughts and these posts. Mm -hmm. And I've since come to find that that mentality, for me personally, was really detrimental, um, especially as my profile sort of rose and I Mm -hmm. was having more and more strangers tell me who I am based on my posts on social media Mm -hmm. and thinking they have that three-dimensional idea of who I am. Mm -hmm. And um, they don't, obviously. And trying to create one was so emotionally detrimental to me because it just it's an impossible task. And so I've pulled back a lot on Mm -hmm. social media and I've been all the better for it. And I think, you know, in times of strife and difficult times, it, it can be a little upsetting to people when you don't share every thought or mm-hmm. feeling or opinion that you have on social media during times of political or, or, or geopolitical unrest and, and things like issues are happening in the world. But like for me, it's like you have to protect yourself a little bit and protect um, your your individuality and, and your personhood from the like flatness that social media can can create Um, and that has been really helpful to to my mental health over the last couple of years as I've pulled back a little bit amazing I I couldn't agree with you more social media has so many amazing things to offer but it can it can come at such a high cost especially if you are higher profile in the world and people have an expectation of you and and an entitlement to content from you and it can feel really objectifying, really draining. So I'm so yeah. glad that you stepped back and gave yourself permission to just breathe a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you again. This was such an awesome conversation. I'm really grateful to you. Yeah. I'm re- thanks so much for having me on. This has been amazing. Really incredible. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. It means so much to me that you are here. If this episode speaks to you, feel free to like and leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. That helps it reach more people. I'll see you here next week. Thank you for listening to Get Naked with Dr. Kate. Stay connected with me on Instagram and TikTok at Dr. Kate Balistrary. Everyone has questions, and I want to answer as many as I can. So feel free to email your questions to question at getnakedpodcast.com. If you're looking for a free 30-minute consultation with me or someone on my team, visit modernintimacy.com. And don't forget to join our newsletter, Modern Intimacy, on Substack. Let's meet back here next week. A new episode drops every Tuesday. 
Disclaimer, this podcast is not a substitute for therapy and does not constitute a professional relationship with Dr. Kate Balistrieri or Modern Intimacy. This podcast is strictly for education and entertainment purposes only. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.